This was a book that my therapist recommended to me, actually. Okay. I don't remember what we had been talking about, and I don't remember which agreement she was sort of prescribing to me as uh, <laughs> as advice that day. But yeah. I immediately looked it up and ordered it because I was intrigued by the premise, which is there are dozens of things, dozens of like societal agreements that we have unconsciously and unwittingly made throughout our lives like we agree to societal standards and we agree to certain conditions that are thrust upon us when we're young yeah and these are four additional agreements that if adopted will give us some personal freedom and allow us to be ourselves and honor ourselves and not feel confined to those conditions that were imposed upon us in our youth yeah a realization I had when I was reading this, I, I liked it as well, and it was actually weird. Um, I remember seeing this book all the time growing up. I think my dad had it like sitting on his nightstand. Okay. So I was pretty surprised to take it out of the box when you mailed it, because I was like, I just hadn't thought about it in yeah. probably 10 years. And I don't know if I read it. I might have as a kid, but it's an interesting time in my life I'm finding to be reading a book like this. Like I've been in a place where I think traditionally I would benefit a lot from very spiritual books, like even self-help kinds of books or adjacent books, things like that. But I've never been more critical of everything yeah. in my life yeah. than I am right now. Agreed. So I read it with kind of a a different eye than I would have ordinarily. And in some ways, I, I kind of wonder if a different eye than I should have. Probably, because I what I think is that I ended up reading it anthropologically. Okay. And not spiritually. Because I think I was reading it around the time that I was, you know, last fall, late fall, sometime. But around the time when I was kind of wondering, what does faith mean to me anymore? Yeah. So similar to what we were saying in our review of Comedy Sex God, some of those spiritual components can be lost on people, but it doesn't stop you from absorbing the positive message and the positive teachings of the yeah. book as a whole. And I found that in order to gain that teaching, in order to be receptive to all of it, I had to read it more anthropologically. Like, okay, here are people who do things this way. What can we gain from what what knowledge or and or wisdom can we gain from their way of life or their methods of spirituality? Well, that's a good point because that's that's similar to how I I don't know. I think I had a miscommunication with some aspect of it around that. I wasn't sure that I agreed with every aspect of like the Toltec approach, but I respected it and I liked learning about it. Like, and I find that about a lot of different cultures and a lot of different things that I've read about that seem completely different to the world that I know. Like, it's just always cool to like learn about that stuff. And it's always as valuable as whatever you're doing at any given time. But I kind of wish he stayed more in that, in that voice throughout the book and almost wrote about this way. Like you mentioned, like this is a way of kind of interacting with the world. Like how can we, what can we gain from this? What can we learn from this? Like that's, yeah. that's cool to me. And I almost wish that he stayed there because I think my only genuine like criticism of it, and it, it's very like, uh, it's, it's kind of a, a thready criticism because I didn't sense any kind of, um, I don't know, ill intent behind anything he was saying like it seemed like it's just an earnest book he seems like he's really doing a good thing but it's when it starts to feel a little bit prescriptive or a little bit like this one guy who figured out like this is what life's all about like i think we've talked about this on some other episode but 
just how like do any of us really have the right to know or to write like that yeah we talked about that on comedy sex god yeah and that's one thing i like about the way pete holmes approached it and the way that it can be approached sometimes is when it stays more anecdotal mm-hmm. or when it's written about in like an anthropological way or in a historical way sometimes you know i just i find that 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 shuts that voice down for me but that could be an entirely personal thing that could even just be specific to where i am right now in my life so i wasn't sure how much credit to give that that voice but i found it a little hard to suppress at certain points but easier with this book than other similar books i've read recently yeah i think that's more or less where we both are right now is that we don't really want much in the way of prescriptive advice yeah. Or prescriptive ideology or anything like that. And I think that's totally fine. And I honestly have found that I'm pretty easily able to filter that out. Okay. Like with this book, like I was just saying, re- reading it anthropologically rather than spiritually was helpful to me. Yeah. I don't know that I could read. I mean, we're going to be doing a Ram Dass episode at some point in the spring. Yeah, uh, that might be a challenge for both of us. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, luckily we'll have Brian Dickens on for that, so I think he'll be <laughs> taking the wheel. Yeah. Um. Anyway, shall we do the uh, each agreement one by one? Sure. Yeah. So number one, be impeccable with your word. How much have you struggled over the years with just kind of being a chameleon and trying to fit in and not being true to yourself for the sake of? what others want you to be. I've struggled profoundly. It's uh-huh. been my entire life. <laughs> I just swing between doing that, like doing the chameleon thing and then being disgusted with myself and getting as far away as I can from that and then being terrified of that and then swinging back to the chameleon side. That's been my entire human experience, really. Yeah. It's until, I mean, recent years, it's gotten significantly better, like mid-20s, like early 20s. But yeah, that, I am familiar with that. Yeah, I was saying earlier, it's easier when you get a little bit older. It's easier when you start to feel a little bit more independent. Yep. But it's a very... And I don't know if this is exactly where Don Miguel Ruiz is coming from when he says, be impeccable with your word. But for me, I know that this has been a lot of, you know, I'll feel as though it's not my place to assert my individuality to an authority figure or someone who is supposedly supposed to have influence over me in any way or dominion over me in any way. Yeah. Um, even if it's only by virtue of them being my elder. So I think it's, it's taken me a very long time to even start practicing being impeccable with my word. See, I had an interesting thought when I was reading that I read it that way first, I read it as like truth, you know, and then I was thinking about it more. I was thinking about the idea of like the the harsh truth versus the gentle lie, like that whole thing, like which one is more moral? Like, yes, one is a lie, but you're saving somebody from potentially unnecessary and extreme pain versus one is the truth, but who fucking cares? Like, yeah, great, you're true to this one moral idea, but like yeah. you just hurt a dozen people to stick to this one arbitrary rule. And I've always kind of liked that debate, but I started realizing like, at least the way that I read that chapter, the whole idea of being impeccable to me is just, just mean it, like just stand behind it. So even if you're going to tell a gentle lie, know that you're sparing somebody something that you believe is, is wrong to put them through, you know? Yeah. Like do it out of love and do it out of complete, like you would die on that hill love in whatever scale that needs to take, as opposed to feeling skeezy about 
the morals of it, but knowing like, well, but it's the truth. That because that felt too narrow to me. Mm. But I also I'm very conflict avoidant as a person, so <laughs> it's also possible that I'm using this to justify my own uh, pansy ass <laughs> tendencies every so often. Well, see, that's what I'm saying is like, and we'll we'll talk about this in a minute, but. I feel like the first agreement and the second agreement pair very well together. Yeah. Because I was reading Be Impeccable With Your Word and Don't Take Anything Personally as, you know, if you eschew the judgment of others, if you are to say that that's what don't take anything personally means. Yeah. Then you have no reason not to be impeccable with your word. Yeah. Because you don't necessarily, I shouldn't say care, but like the influence that others have on you slash your opinion of yourself slash how other people validate your own self-efficacy is not going to depend on your telling a white lie or your being a social chameleon or your, you know, fronting like you're something that you're not. Yeah. You know, or, or, or agreeing with other people's opinions or, or politics or morality or, or whatever for the sake of not having to stand up for yourself. So that's why I was saying to to you earlier that the first and second agreements worked very well as a pair for me because what I've struggled with profoundly is agreeing with other people's stances or you know what they favor or what they like or dislike merely for the sake of not having to assert my individuality in their presence so that it won't shake up the situation. Yeah. You know, or so that it won't shake up the social dynamic that we appear to have. Yeah. So then it follows that if you don't take anything personally, you don't have to worry about their judgment or their perception of how that dynamic shifts if you agree or disagree with the wrong thing at the wrong time. Yeah. I like that way of looking at it. Yeah. I'm not saying it's the way to look at it, but that's what I think is so valuable about this book. Like, even without a spiritual reading or even without an anthropological reading of it. I think anybody could read this book and immediately picture themselves in a situation where this advice is necessary. Yep. But everyone is going to read it differently because everyone has had different experiences in which this advice was necessary. Yeah. And in that way, I think it's brilliant. Well, I think one comparison I was unconsciously making the entire time I read it, it's it's a different book entirely, but... Have you ever read the um, the Tao Te Ching? No. It scratches a similar itch for me. And it's one of those where it's a Taoist approach, so it's very, it's like a little bit more to the point in certain ways because, I mean, the whole idea of like kind of express something in three words and you're out of the chapter, you know, it's 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 got a real kind of a cool charm to it that way. Like it's so pithy to like a magical degree. But um, a lot of these same universalities were found in that. And I've always found that mm-hmm. to be very interesting, that even however many thousands of years ago, these were real head scratchers for people. And yeah, and not only thousands of years ago, but in a culture that is very, very different from Western culture, let alone modern Western culture mm-hmm. and in our corner of it. Like, I've always found that to be really interesting. So I like when these things are zoomed out, like you're saying, like you could be in any situation and find something in these. Like, that's always been a huge appeal to me. So how did you interpret Don't Take Anything Personally? I felt pretty similar, honestly. Okay. 
it they definitely tie together the first agreement and the second agreement and um and I think don't take anything personally was the chapter that I found myself being the most critical of at okay. first it was the one that i I kind of immediately latched on to the absolutes in that because it it became very quickly like this is where I realized like I was going to need to kind of like suspend something like some form of disbelief or some form of criticism or whatever the hell it was I was trying to work through that day. Like I needed to put that on the back burner for a few minutes, but it was the don't and the anything that threw me at first. It was the idea that like, I don't know. I just, I've always kind of liked the, the curiosity angle of things like that. Like instead of saying, don't take anything personally, say like, why ask yourself why you're taking something personally. Mm. That's more interesting to me because I, I don't, it like stresses me out to think about, obviously this is not how he presented it, but this is my just lifetime of anxiety building it up this way. But when somebody says don't, that's the one thing that I'm going to <laughs> petrify myself into doing. Right. So by saying don't take anything personally, I'm not going to spend my entire day <laughs> saying you fucking idiot, you'll never be enlightened. You just took that personally. Like, right. It's really hard for me to turn off that knee jerk, even when I know it's a knee jerk. And I can immediately work my way back to a more like solid spiritual intellectual footing where I can actually work through that. Yeah, I, I just find that language sets me up to fail in the short term or to get extremely suspicious in the short term. Yeah. Uh, and again, that could absolutely be a me problem. That sounds a lot like a me problem. No, but... I, don't, I don't think it is. Like that's the kind of thing that I find myself talking with my therapist about pretty regularly. That as soon as absolutes are thrown into it, it feels too prescriptive, but it's prescriptive from a camp, you know, and like, that's all it is. It's a camp. It's a school of thought. It's not necessarily the thing that's going to cleanse you or purify you or anything, you know, it's just like, or enlighten you. And a lot of times there's a destination in mind. That's something that I almost wish wasn't reserved to subtext in so many cases, but when you read these books, it's like there's a specific type of enlightenment or success or happiness or whatever that this is all building towards. Mm -hmm. And so if that holds to be true, then it's okay to have rules because they're just saying like, if you want to get to Y, you have to do X, you know, like these are the steps that you have to take in order to get to this place. Cause this is, these are the parts that build to that whole. And I have a very easy time understanding it when it's put that way, because then it's like, I can choose to follow this instruction manual at my own risk. Yeah. But if this product comes out all fucked up, I'm going to know why. It's because I didn't do steps like A through D. And like, of course, it's not going to have the top half. Like that's, I build furniture that way. I deal with philosophy that way. Mm -hmm. I like it when I know what risks I'm assuming. But when it's kind of like this nebulous, like, here's how you live a good life. And here are the steps you have to take. I'm like, well, good by whose standards and good for how long. Right. So it hit that nerve. But again, I don't think, I never got the sense that he was trying to hit that nerve or that he was trying to sell books or anything like that. Yeah. But for what it's worth, I believe that you're right. Uh, Something I've been hearing a lot lately is if you're thinking about the path to enlightenment, then you won't reach enlightenment. Yeah. Because no one who has achieved enlightenment ever uses that word. (laughs) Doesn't that stress you out? No. Because I'm not looking for enlightenment. Um, I think to do so is vain. Yeah. And I think to do so is like to declare a uh, 
well, there was another point I forgot, but the, I, I hear that likened to the idea that you may have heard this before, but like the Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't really know much about that philosophy at all, but I hear those two points likened to one another pretty often. So the point is, if you take prescriptive advice, such as don't take anything personally, and you have, and you utter that to yourself when you find yourself taking something personally, then what is the objective of uttering that to yourself? Yeah. It's so that if you are taking something personally, it does not harm you. But if what you just said, ask yourself why you're taking it personally, allows you to achieve the same goal, yeah, that doesn't feel as prescriptive because it's not a command. Yeah, it's almost like, um, so maybe a weird analogy, but like, like taking a punch or something or getting a, like a ball whipped at you, like <laughs> saying don't take anything personally is like saying don't get punched. It's like that's probably not in your control, you know, in that moment. Like that's probably something that's being thrust into your, your life. But it could be phrased as instead of standing rigid when it hits you, yeah, lean with it. Yeah. Like if they hit you in the gut, you move your back back, you know, like kind of like absorb it and follow it. And it won't hurt you as badly. It's the same as like if you're about to get hit in the head by a baseball, you kind of like go with it. You don't try to stand tall because it's going to knock you down. So that's how I read that as like a, a helpful thing is you can't necessarily help letting something in every once in a while, but don't try to just like go, no, it's not in there. Or like, oh God, I'm not a good person or something. If it gets to me, just mm -hmm. let it get to you and then be like, okay, like here it is. Why is it here? Where did it come from? Will there be more? Just start asking questions. Yeah. Because there's just complete mercy in that approach to me. That's the type of thing where, like, you get stronger, like you mentioned, like you kind of get stronger and, and more resolved in those ways because you're not deliberately looking for them. Mm -hmm. But you also, you accept the, the topic we always bring up, like the kind of fallibility of the world or the unpredictable nature of the world. Like, yeah, it reserves a little bit for the gods, you know? But what I was getting at was that I think both of those practices have the same goal in mind but yeah. one of them feels less goal oriented yeah. and i think that's why you are more easily able to adopt one over the other because don't take anything personally like okay ask yourself why you take something personally eventually begets the practice the habitual the habituation of just asking yourself and not having to remind yourself to ask yourself yeah, I understand. Yeah. Whereas, don't take anything personally is less contemplative in nature. It doesn't inspire contemplation. Yeah, it might, depending on your personal response to it. But yeah. prescriptively, it does not seem like something that would inspire contemplation, or is meant to. Yeah. So I think that's why you, you and I probably both have an easier time accepting something like ask yourself, be curious about that, and. That's meant so that you can habituate to contemplation. But the goal is relatively the same for both. It just one sounds like way more of a command. Yeah. And that's where I wonder sometimes with this book and with others like it, how much of that was the editor? Like if we were yeah. to sit down with Don Miguel Ruiz, Ruiz and have a conversation about, or have this conversation, honestly, yeah. would he stick to his guns on the phrasing or would he say, that's how you make this appeal to 100 million people at once, or that's how you make it make sense to 100 million people at once, 
Cause like, I kind of, I get that too. It's the same as like pop music and stuff. Like as soon as something goes wide, it gets kind of averaged out. Mm. And not a lot of people necessarily think this way. Like, I don't think a lot of people want to be curious, you know, and that's fine. Like I get a kick out of it and it just gives me a sense of, of survival. Like it, it gives me a, a feeling that like there's this card I can still play when shit gets real bad. But like, that's me. And I don't know a ton of people in my own life who like to think like that, let alone in the world. Mm. So I just, I wonder if there was like another draft sometimes or if he just had to think of a way to make it very basic, very universal, and maybe a consequence of that is it feels a little prescriptive. Well, I was just going to say, I think the more that we talk about prescriptive advice and how and how not to take it, the more easily it is to just kind of see inside the shell of it, you know? The shell is that it is prescriptive, and then within the shell is how it can help you. Yeah. And I'm getting so that I don't... This isn't really true, but I'm <laughs> I'm getting closer to resenting things less for being prescriptive. Yeah. In that I don't feel like I need to follow anything strictly. I feel less and less pressure all the time to be a faithful community member of whatever ideology, whatever practice. Yeah. So not feeling that pressure makes me think, okay, it's very healthy to be skeptical. It's like when people talk about being a, do you, have you ever heard the term cafeteria Christian? <laughs> no, I like it though. Can you guess what it means? <laughs> like a proselytizer or something like, a, like an armchair psychiatrist. No, or no. It's like, if you're a cafeteria Christian, you, you give yourself the freedom to like pick and choose which parts of the Bible are true to you and which parts you uh, honor and which parts you don't. Okay. Um, and I've, I've never really, I don't know. There are times when I've seen things wrong with that and there are times when I haven't, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> it, the evolution of mankind is entirely determined by who decides which element of what is important. <laughs> And then they move yeah. on from there. And there's, I just see less and less wrong with that as I get older. Yeah. So I think that goes for any kind of prescriptive advice, any kind of spiritual quip that I might take something from, but I don't have to take all of it. Mm -hmm. And you husk it and you see what's inside and you uh, gain some kind of nourishment from it, some kind of enrichment from it and move on. And... You don't have to consume every part of it, and you don't have to be consumed by every part of it. Which, in a way, is the essence of <laughs> don't take anything personally, because it's it's sort of that notion that like these books weren't written specifically for us, as much as sometimes it can feel like, whoa, this is just arrived for me in this part of my life. Like, yeah, anyone can prescribe anything or select or curate anything. It's like that's their right to do it, just as much as it's our right to say, eh, I don't want that part, mm -hmm. and. By virtue of doing that, we've removed any sort of personal nature that that interaction could have. Yeah. So maybe he's right. <laughs> How about don't make assumptions? Um, yeah, I liked that one. I felt like it was a little too close to... to I mean, this isn't a criticism. I'm just saying that I, I didn't necessarily get two separate things out of that and don't take any things personally because I... In my experience, taking things personally and making assumptions tend to be the same thing. Mm, okay. 
like I tend to be making an assumption by taking something personally, you know? Yeah. For instance, I was complaining earlier about my neighbors making noise and the thought that I filter that through is this is inconsiderate to me. Mm. I am both making an assumption that they had me in mind and then disregarded me. Yeah. And that leads me to take it personally. Wouldn't it be funny if they did though? Oh, Christ. Every single time if they were like, turn it up. <laughs> I hear them down there. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> Conceited. No, I know what you mean. Man. Yeah. No, they do. They go hand in hand. I mean, for me, it was the same deal. They went very closely together, but it was always, it was around that curiosity angle for me. It was like the, the idea of like, we can't know what we don't know. Mm. But it was a similar thing too, where it was like, question your assumptions, you know? Cause I, I just think that like making assumptions is a valuable and kind of hardwired thing that we do cognitively. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that it's just let you, something you let go, like something that you're just bound to do forever and can't like adjust every so often if you're aware of it. So I felt like it's another thing where it's like ask why you're making certain assumptions or see what those assumptions reveal because they can be so useful, but they hurt so much. Yeah. This reminds me of a Ram Dass quote. I'm going to try to remember it. I think it's, um, do not seek the truth, only cease to cherish your opinions. <laughs> that's good. Or something like that. I think that's it. But that's kind of a trap that we all fall into from time to time. Is that like we form opinions and the opinions are born of assumptions or mm. presumptions or preconceptions. And then good or bad, we cherish them because we they inform our lives, you know, and they inform our views of morality. They inform our views of ourselves as moral versus immoral or attractive or unattractive or whatever, you know. Yeah. And I think most of the time Ramdas is speaking in a uh, more spiritual way than that, but that's another one like you can strip off the husk of spirituality from that and just say, yeah, if I stop cherishing my opinions and ask myself what is only an opinion mm. and how did I form that opinion in the first place? And as we have said, be curious about it and is it an opinion worth having if it's causing you harm? So in that sense, don't make assumptions is essentially, yeah, question and be curious about where that assumption came from. And if you can prove it to be an assumption, then it's not something that you have to hold value for. It's not something that you have to cherish. It's something that you can let go of if it stops you from living truthfully or living well. Yes, that might be another one that feels like deceptively direct because it seems like there's some truth to it, like... Uh, like don't arrive at them, don't arrive at assumptions or don't act on assumptions. It feels like a, a okay thing to go by, but it's not the whole picture, you know? It's like he has to distill some aspect of it. Yeah, so do you think that the point or like <laughs> maybe the goodness of a book like this is that if you feel it's too direct, then it might... Uh, I, I just, I was laughing because I stumbled upon the phrase prescriptive contemplation in my head. And that sounded nice to me. <laughs> yeah. But with a book like this, it's like if something sounds too direct, then maybe you're taking it too directly. And maybe the idea of any of that given chapter or that given passage, whatever it is, maybe if it sounds too direct or if it feels too prescriptive, then what it's really prescribing to you is the contemplation of the passage. 
Yeah, because I am assuming that it's <laughs> prescriptive. <laughs> you know, that it's like got this very specific goal in mind. Yeah. So again, yeah. Fucking Don Miguel, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Smug bastard's looking up at me from the back jacket. Maybe his goal was to make you think about it. <laughs> I'd respect the hell out of that, though, because that's fun. That's like, that's when the world feels like it opens up, you know? Like when you get to start having those kinds of conversations about it. I think the only, like, I don't even know if it's a worry, because to be honest, I don't really give a shit what people do. But the feeling that a lot of people would read something like this and arrive at these points. Sure. And just go and proclaim that. That's something that, like, doesn't impact me in any way, but irritates me on some small level. Mm-hmm. And I think it's petty, but, like, I think that was part of it, too. I read so many, not just the chapter titles, but kind of the language at times I read that way. as like, this is somebody that, like, somebody's going to read this and be like, whoa, 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 like... There's that frustration of like, no, there's more. Like, come on, go to the next thing. That Like, you can open this door up wider. And I think on some level there's a loneliness. Like, I feel lon- I feel kind of ashamed of like wanting to go to that other place sometimes or being forced there. Like, I don't know how to fucking rest <laughs> yeah. or arrive at anything useful. Yeah. Oh, the word I was trying to remember earlier was idolatry. Ah. Yeah. And I think for both of us, like our main concern with a book like this is going to be, okay, these are prescriptive steps that you have to follow in order to gain a certain position in life. But there is an idolatry to that. It's a naming of something that you don't have. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason that enlightenment seems silly to me is because to chase it is to idolize and to possess it is to possess something. (laughs) And like... (laughs) (laughs) an enlightened person would not cherish a possession Mm -hmm. traditionally speaking so it's kind of like this whole idea of enlightenment kind of seems like utopia to me you know it's the perfect thing and it's the thing that can never be because it's almost a paradox if you held enlightenment as an idol and named it as a thing that you were not that you desired to be then once you attained that idol it would be vain to recognize it. Yeah. And there's there's more to it than that. Someone could school me on this and completely prove me wrong, I'm sure. <laughs> but it is a form of idolatry, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. And I yeah, I feel I don't know. That really feels like a like a personal thing when I read these types of not personal in the like taking it personally way, but like in a it's a reflection of something. Like an insecurity or I don't know, like Whenever I read books and I feel that feeling, yeah, there's some part of me that's like, who fucking cares? Like, if that's what gets a person through the day, that's good enough. If mm-hmm. this excites somebody, that's good enough. I'm not yeah. some goddamn genius or demigod sitting around trying to impart truths on everybody. Like, and ultimately, I I don't really care on most of the levels that I'm conscious of. I'm just if it's kind of interesting, you know, then it's it's cool, and that's how a lot of people look at shit. Yeah. So like, why does it? hit that place Mm. and if it does feel condescending or prescriptive in any way when i'm reading it why do i keep reading it (laughs) so there's all sorts of (laughs) inner conflict going on when i experience this and it has very little to do with the book i'm finding (laughs) i think a lot of books like this can very easily resemble an infomercial yeah (laughs) that's a good way of putting it like yeah 
follow these four easy steps and you'll be a brand new person. You know, yeah. this is something that you, it's a product that's being marketed to you as like enlightenment or, you know, self-help in general as a, as a product, like the, the better version of you as a product Yep. that you didn't know that you needed. And all you need to do is be a little bit unhappy and yeah. you'll buy into it. And I think it's worth noting that this is not a book that assumes that of you. No. Because, again, he speaks in a lot of universalities. I, I really do believe that anybody in this book, and to be clear, that's also like a marketing ploy, Brian. You, know, <laughs> you, you see yourself in, in the advertisement. But to be clear, there's no reason to think that that's the kind of marketing or the kind of writing that went into this book. I think that it's just um, easy to see it that way for some things that are that prescriptive because it's like it makes it so quick and easy and followable that it almost seems like he's saying follow these four steps as long as you adhere to them you'll be the better you and you will have succeeded and yeah. you will have like not let the author down because you're yeah changing your life in that way and to be fair this book got picked up by like Oprah and everybody and that ilk yeah. everybody of that oak since it's come out so like it's entirely possible too that any understanding we have of it beyond like what we got from actually reading it is colored by its marketability <laughs> yeah because it was marketed by the marketers who literally do that yeah. and it is kind of obnoxious like it's not just something that i i think is in our heads it's like there is something very drone-like and condescending about the way that those groups market stuff like this and I think I do find that to be like alarming when I see that because it's so dangerously aligned with ulterior motives and people are going to those places out of a very earnest terror or pain or boredom or, or something that can be dealt with a little bit more honestly in my mm. opinion. And so I don't think that this book got sucked into like any kind of a scheme, but it got pushed by a lot of those same people who do sure. advertently or inadvertently get sucked up into schemes. Yeah. So, like, I don't think Oprah's like a con artist either, but if Oprah says something, a lot of people are going to do it. Yeah. And something about that scares the shit out of me, just objectively. See, I don't think that that would color my reading experience at all. Simply because, like we were talking about earlier, the value is in your own ability to contemplate and your own ability to engage in curiosity. Yeah. So... For me, a book like this is like, if it feels too prescriptive, I'll try to make it less prescriptive in my filtering out of information. If it feels too marketed, I mean, don't make fucking assumptions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, that is the cynicism of somebody who has disdain for capitalism. So that doesn't really take the value away, like the literary value or the value of some of the wisdom that's in those pages. That doesn't take any of that away. Yeah. Um, just because it was well marketed. No, and I don't think it does for me either. It's yeah. just a current that I find I have to fight mm -hmm. while I'm reading it. It doesn't necessarily change where I arrive because I have absolutely nothing against the idea of people even people like selling out or just marketing the shit out of something or making a billion dollars selling a self-help book if it's a good self-help book i don't give a shit like mm -hmm. i'm not specifically anti-capitalism there's just something about the daytime tv way 
where I'm like, that has its own place. Sure. But please stay away from the shit that's under the hood, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because people are just watching it because it's the only thing that's on at two in the afternoon. Like, so just don't make it stuff that's going to fuck them up. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so I, I have some kind of a weird visceral reaction to that I've noticed. And I it's something I've never been clear on why, but I remember starting, it started brewing when I was younger, but just seeing, I specifically it was Dr. Phil. I think I've invoked him on this before, uh-huh. but <laughs> he disgusts me on a molecular level. And I just, people like that scare me. It, they really, I look at that and I'm like, people look to you for fucking guidance. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be an entertainer, just, just entertain. Like you could do the same shit, just don't slam the gavel. So I I think that sometimes certain types of language or certain types of marketing kind of trigger that thing for me where I'm like, oh Christ, is this one of these? Sure. Yeah. And I have to constantly vet every sentence and like convince myself that it's not. But again, it's so weird. I don't know why the hell it matters or if it does. I mean, it might not, but do you find that you also tend to look at things as like, because it's the majority, then it's probably not for you? I did when I was younger, yeah. for sure. Just if if nothing else, just to justify kind of feelings like this in a way, like mm-hmm. justify any harsh reaction to a majority as like, well, I must be different, and I didn't know how to look any deeper. Because um, in a lot of cases, that's true, especially for a more artistic person. Mm. You know, like for me, if I go into a bookstore, and this has happened to me, if mm. I go into a Barnes and Noble and I'm like, I don't actually know what to buy. What would you recommend? And the bookseller says, here's this book by James Patterson. I'm going to scoff and walk out of the store (laughs) because I'm that pretentious and (laughs) I know that James Patterson is not for me. Mm. But I, you know, prefer literary fiction and have spent my life studying it. So like that makes sense. So a lot of, if, if, you know, if you're recommended something that is just what the majority of people like, you know, like the bland yeah. milk toast pop culture hits. Often that's not what jives with me. Yeah. And sometimes it is. But I will say too, I find that stuff still hits that place. Like I still have that contrarian bone in my body that like, <laughs> yeah, me when too. somebody suggests, Hey, have you listened to the, like my brother got me into this song by the weekend recently. And when he said, this is by the weekend. First of all, I think I thought the weekend was T-Pain. Because I just, huh. I thought their voices were very similar at one point for some fucking okay. reason. I have no idea what either of them look like or whether they perform with bands or what, what decade they're from. <laughs> but I went into it with that that idea. But my first reaction was, oh Christ. And then my second was, that was what you would do when you were 14. Give it a few minutes. And yeah. But so I realized stuff still hits that place. But now I've kind of like, I think it was such a formative time in my life that I like, defended those niche tastes that I still have that like it's part of my wiring right now yeah but I now know what I like about the things that I like enough to sort of say it doesn't matter what box it's in like you know if it's gonna be bland then have substance and if it's not gonna have substance then turn a phrase and if it's not gonna turn a phrase then be cool and melodic and if it's not that then be produced really well you know there's always a box that it can check and the only stuff that I can say I'm genuinely turned off by is the stuff that doesn't check a single box. Mm. And then if that's popular, it, it infuriates me because now I have to hear about it all the time. Fucking Imagine Dragons, case in point. Okay, yep. But it's like, it's very specific and I can defend why I don't like it mm-hmm. 
or why I think it falls short of XYZ. So yeah. it changes the contrarianism for me. Four. Always do your best. I don't have any criticisms about that or any particular takeaways from it either. I think it's yeah. it's mostly self-explanatory. This chapter almost felt to me like the cheerleader at the end. You know, like yeah. like now you have the elements that you need, go forth and conquer and be your best self. Now, having said that, that being my takeaway could mean that I kind of tuned out toward the end. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a very simple notion too. I don't think there's anything wrong with with taking that away from it cuz I think the only additional thing I really got from it was I don't know if I forget if it was in this or if it just made me think of this again, but the whole idea that doing your best is very circumstantial. It's not an objective hit this mark every single time. It's just throw your full weight behind whatever you're doing. It's it's a thing we're weirdly always capable of doing. Yeah, I like there being a relativism to what your best can be. Yeah, there's a trust, like a self-trust to that, that is kind of cool to me. And I find that that undoes a lot of like anxieties and a lot of doubt and just crap that like gums me up psychologically. And mm. Like when I kind of remember that like all I have to think about is, is this really the best I can be doing in this moment. And if it's not, then do a little bit more. Mm. And if it is because you're afraid you're going to like die if you do more or something, then just don't do more because now you know. Right. Like, this is the upper yeah. limit. But it's a very simple thing to analyze. But it's kind of terrifying and it kind of like takes practice too. So it's, mm. I, I enjoy that because it, it exposes a weak spot in my own makeup and it also is a very easy one to practice all the time. Yeah, it's like do your circumstantial best, do your yeah. informed best, do your <laughs> practical best. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was I was reading that around the same time that I read um The War of Art too. Mm. So yeah. the concept of doing your best and the concept of not allowing like your inner critic or your inner procrastinator or anything to hold you back at all. Mm. And so I was definitely have a lot having a lot of feelings about you know, but this, but that, but I don't have time, but this is in my way, but, you know, there are so many obstacles. And mm. in The War of Art, he talks a lot about how obstacles are just figurative in, in your imagination, and, you know, you can get beyond anything. I think that would have been a, a good takeaway at the time, and obviously I didn't have that takeaway at the time, but there being a relativity to what your best is in any given moment, given your obstacles, given your circumstances. Yeah. You know, do your best relative to blank. Do your best, but not in comparison to blank. Yeah. Like the fact that it is your best and not the best. Yeah. Is a very, exactly. is a that's very such good a lesson. Key distinction. Yeah. Cause I think that's the toxicity that everybody sees when they talk about like, like I see a lot of like kind of slacker, approaches to things justified in this way mm -hmm. or a lot of like the sort of quasi nihilism that happens a lot today like that depressed kind of like throwing your hands up and just falling into life yeah way of starting the day like i get that i lived like that for so long i still have that in me but there's something just more exciting about like taking a couple of shots at it too and i think that's the misnomer is that 
it just starts to feel like this impossible benchmark after a while. Yeah. And honestly, it's because it is. Like, if your circumstances are pummeling you that badly, yeah, you can't be expected to hit that line every single time. Like, it's just physically it makes no sense. Like, you, you run out of shit at a certain point. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, if all you've got left is, like, 10%, do 10. And drain yourself down to 2 and then do 2. And then if all you can do is lay down, then just <laughs> lay down. Like, there's such a simplicity to that. And I don't trust it yet. But that's something I know. Like, I trust it, like... Objectively, it's just like I haven't learned to have that be my reaction yet to things. I have to really get myself there, but I I just find that to be a very freeing notion. Mm -hmm. So I, that was actually one of my favorite parts of this book, I think, was that was the chapter I most expected to kind of, not like roll my eyes at, but like kind of find criticism in. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, it didn't hit me in any seriously profound ways, but it hit me in a nice, like, life-affirming way. yeah. What do you think about the whole idea of like just the glossed over kind of Sparknotes version of his impetus for writing this book is so similar to other writers and other just other figures' experiences that make them write their books or launch their whatevers? Like, what do you think about that whole idea? Like that he, you know, he was a doctor and then he got into a extremely dangerous car accident, had an out-of-body experience and... Made him. I think he got like an apprenticeship to um, a Toltec spiritual leader, and then wrote this as like his kind of like giving something back to humanity gesture. Like that's obviously the super glossed over. Like there's way the hell more to it than that. I'm assuming. But was that in the book? Yeah, that's in the just on the jacket. That's like his. I don't think yeah, I he read was born that. into a family of healers, raised in rural Mexico. Yeah, he learned the teachings and the occasional esoteric. Toltec knowledge. Instead, distracted by modern life, Miguel chose to attend medical school and become a surgeon. A near-death experience changed his life. Stunned by the experience, he started practicing intensive self-inquiry. Basically went back to the ancestral components of his roots and started to look for himself. Hmm. I mean, I think with any story like that, I'm struck by the meeting of the ancient and the modern. Yeah. You know, because obviously he's not this isn't a book told in parables. Like you can imagine a, a version of this where its presentation is more mythological or is more told more in the tribal ancient ways, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's probably what makes this maybe more marketable or maybe just gives it some of the appeal that it has is that it yeah. feels like it connects to another culture and it feels like it connects to another form of spirituality without really actively trying to bring you there. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, it's a book that tries to teach, but not a book that tries to get you to sign your name, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So whenever the, whenever something like that is the case, I like that it kind of uses ancient, some ancient language and some ancient metaphor, maybe, and some ancient imagery. But it's not trying to, like, sell you the robes and the altar and the whole, like religious experience yeah you know definitely so and i don't know what the toltec culture was like so that that's not to assume that there would be a version of the toltec culture that would sell you on that way of life or that religion or those traditions as mm -hmm. as being something worth proselytizing but like there's almost a way in which this feels like joseph campbell okay you know what i mean like the studying of ancient lore and ancient myth 
and an ancient culture, but related to the modern day psyche. Yeah. And shown as a timeless example or a, a timeless like cross section of humankind and the way that we think and act in the world. Like, what did you tie that back to earlier? Uh, the Tao, the Tao Te Ching. Yep. Yeah. Like people were thinking that way a thousand years ago or whenever it was written. Like, I like when that can be proved. Yeah. I like it when, yeah. when it can be demonstrated that not that much has changed psychically. Yeah. That's always really interesting. It, yeah. It's kind of, kind of a bummer sometimes too, when you think <laughs> about it, but it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's cool. There was like a part of me too, when I read the jacket and like heard that little bit about his story that made me wish it was more anecdotal hmm. or a little bit more autobiographical. Cause it's an interesting, it's a very, um, a very earnest approach to this, like even more so than, than what he did in my opinion. Not that that wasn't, but like his experience was cool. And it's the same as like if the Pete Holmes book had only included the um, spiritual awakenings, you know, it would have been a very, a shorter book and it would have been a very different kind of a book, a different tone. And for me reading that, like I, I got a lot of color out of the, uh, the in-between, like out of the, the anecdotes and the fuck ups and the, the walls that he slammed into before, like no pun intended, this guy, uh... <laughs> literal concrete wall. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there's something very interesting to me about the application of that universality as, as much as the universality, like, if this guy could have um, put in a little bit, even as like a, just a preface, but just like why, you know, what made you realize you needed to do this? Like what called you back to this specific part of your roots? Cause you know, he's also a freaking surgeon. Like he could have had any number of awakenings or perspectives from that, um, from that experience, like from having an out of body experience, from having a near death experience, from having a, a massive recovery. I'm assuming if he got that close to the beyond, like, as a medical professional, you're just as capable of going that way as you are going spiritual. So there's something interesting to me about that. And it just, it, I like hearing stories. I like hearing how people find this shit. Because actually, I just read Man's Search for Meaning last week, and that's a very different kind of book. And he was a, um, a psychologist, but that was cool. Because, I mean, he even said it in the beginning, like, I'm going to sort of, like, spell out my experiences fairly briefly, mm -hmm. and then I'm going to talk about the approach that I developed as a result of them. And he did. And it was so cool to kind of read each with the other in mind. Yeah. I don't think that's the only way it can be done or even the way it should be done, but it, I just find that I really like it. And this one struck me as like, there's got to be more to this. Like, this guy has, has lived, you know? Mm. But it would have been an entirely different kind of book. Yeah. And I don't know if it would have reached people the way that it has. Yeah, because what I find interesting about this, too, is that I don't remember very many details from within the chapters. Like, the titles of the, the titles of the chapters and the four agreements themselves are really the takeaway. And the rest, because it isn't anecdotal, and maybe because it felt prescriptive at the time, I kind of discarded as filler. <laughs> or yeah, just like a, yeah. a, a somewhat unnecessary explaining of the title and there are definitely some cases in which that was necessary like it needed to be expanded upon for sure yeah like definitely some of those agreements need to be extrapolated much more than just the way they look on paper but i don't remember a whole lot of detail from within the chapters themselves and 
me being the kind of reader I am, I'm sure that I would remember more detail had there been mm. more fables or narratives or parables or what have you. Yeah. But I didn't resent it for not having those things. And I mean, I honestly, going back to the point that we've made a few times, it's being a universal, not that you wouldn't be able to see yourself in a protagonist or, you know, a narrative with some mythos in it. Mm-hmm. Not that that wouldn't be universally relatable or couldn't be. But as we've been over a few times, the fact that these concepts seemed universal maybe precluded the need for a, someone specific story to be showcased. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And it would have ruled out a good amount of readers. Yeah. By doing that. So I think, I don't think any of that was to say that this is written incorrectly, mm-hmm. but it was just, I kind of noticed that about my own reading of it, that that's something I look for. I think when somebody approaches the spiritual or the self-help, even the philosophical in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, it assuages that, like, what gives you the right feeling. And uh, that they have no obligation to write from that perspective. And, and yeah, I think in this case it would have alienated a lot of people. Cause, and even if he had gone the other way and gone the Taoist approach of, like like I said, the Tao Te Ching has, like, there are pages that are, or chapters that are, like, four words. Like, it's mm. it's an incredibly concise book. And it's... Uh, kind of surreal to read it and to see it like written on a page, you know, and there's something so like striking about that, but I could see that losing a lot of people. I mean, mm. it must, cause we, <laughs> it would be all over the place. If not, it's not like it's being hidden. So it's, there's a reason that books like this appeal and books like that don't, at least in, in our society presently. And yeah. sometimes I, th- I almost wonder if some of the filler feeling is like, maybe he was just buying time. Maybe he was just keeping you there in that chapter for long enough that he could twist it around a few ways, make it sink in, let you live in it for a little while and then move on. Because if it was really the two or three lines, even two or three words that some of these would need to be, if Lao Tzu had had sat down with it, Mm -hmm. people would say, what the fuck? It's four words and move to the next chapter and maybe not realize, yeah, it's four words you're going to think about for like 10 years and then move on. (laughs) Like that's, that takes a, a type, I think, or an approach to see that as something that's appealing. Yeah. Or useful. But this one let it kind of germinate a little bit. So, I don't know. It was an interesting book, though. I liked it. Glad I read it. Me too. It was helpful. And like we were saying earlier, I think it was helpful if only because it gave you some things to contemplate. And, you know, even if you disagree with things, with, even if you disagree with some of the things that seem a little too prescriptive. You can also contemplate why you disagree with them. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the craziest thing talking about it is so many of those things were like vaguely starting to materialize for me mentally. But saying them out loud, I realized a lot of those were like, that's where I exist right now. Yeah. Like that's not even remotely connected. To, I would have gotten that out of the fucking newspaper. Like that's just, yeah, yeah. I'm looking for fights at the moment mm-hmm. because I'm I'm bored and I'm pissed off and I just you know (laughs) this sucks so I think I'm just looking for shit to swing at yeah as well as looking for peace so that leads me to a place where I'm finding books that offer peace and I'm swinging at them (laughs) so it's an interesting place to (laughs) to approach these from you know yeah so but it was funny saying half of the shit out loud I was like ah yeah okay (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
Oh, that's funny. Yeah.